Hello, and welcome to Equipping the Saints. My name is Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. For the last couple of weeks, I have been filled with such joy in mapping out a lot of the things that I have planned for this podcast. But then it hit me. In the middle of all this preparation, I had to stop and ask myself, why am I doing any of this? And so the natural thing is to reply to yourself, of course. So I said, well, as I replied to myself, I'm doing this because God has called me to start this ministry in order to share his word with as many people as possible. His plan for me is to equip the saints, hence the name of the podcast, right? I'm talking to myself, so obviously you know all this. So where did this question come from? And it was at that moment that it was like God reminded me of the real reason why we do what we do as Christians. Or rather, what should be why we do what we do. And it's not for ourselves. While it is important and biblical to train and enhance the effectiveness of our brethren, we are here to win souls for Jesus Christ. We cannot forget that real mission. Even now, there are literally billions of human beings on this planet that do not know Christ as they should. Or perhaps the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has never really been explained clearly to them before. This world is so full of fakeness and pseudo-Christians and Bible-thumpers that the message gets skewed or mishandled. If you're listening to this right now, and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, let me tell you about him. This episode is for you. I feel that it's appropriate to fully explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to you today. Now, if you are a believer, whether you've been a believer for a week or 50 years, it doesn't matter. You are surrounded by people every day who need this message of hope and salvation. And perhaps you've never given it to anyone before. Perhaps you've never understood or knew how to share Jesus properly with someone. And if that's you, pray that the Lord will guide you into all truth, and perhaps this podcast can be of some use to you. Please open your Bibles, if you have them, to John chapter 15. We will be reading verses 1 through 6 today. If you're following along with me, my translation of preference is the New American Standard Version. This passage of scripture will be my main focal point, but I will be jumping to different parts of the Bible throughout this podcast. If you're trying to follow along with me, feel free to pause as much as you need in order to keep up. Otherwise, a good thing to do is to take note of the chapter and verse that I'm looking at for your personal use and your in your independent studies. So let's read John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Jesus is speaking here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. 
you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, and dries up. And they gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being who you are. Please guide us today so that we can have a deeper and more clear understanding of who you are and what we are commanded to do. Thank you for your Son, whom you gave us as the perfect illustration of who you are. Turn our hearts towards you today. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you were to ask the average person who Jesus was, they could probably tell you about the historical person of Jesus and some of the more famous things about him. History teaches us that Jesus Christ began his earthly ministry around the age of 30. He selected 12 men from very different walks of life to follow him. It's claimed that Jesus performed many miracles in the presence of thousands of people. For example, the Bible claims that he turned water into wine with a mere thought. He healed people, both with faith and without. He demonstrated that time, space, and resources are not limitations for him. Two different times at sea, they saw their rabbi command nature and nature responded. When he gave vision to a man who was born blind, he committed an act of creation. He commanded Lazarus to come to life the same way he did with Adam. And lastly, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament by living a sinless life and sacrificing himself on the cross to free his people from sin for all time. So naturally, as witnesses to these things, surely they knew who they were dealing with, right? They really didn't. And let's look at a passage that reinforces that point. Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. Now, to their credit, this particular event took place well before Jesus' resurrection and they didn't have a firm grasp of who he was. So after the disciples witnessed Jesus get up in the boat and calmly rebuke the storm that was threatening their lives, we can hear this question that continues to echo throughout the centuries. What kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This verse perfectly described who they thought they were dealing with at the time. They thought Jesus was a great man. Something I have observed is that some of us are still asking ourselves the same question 2,000 years later. 
What kind of man is this? Do we really understand who Jesus is? And if we don't, my intent today is to help you answer that question and what the implications are moving on. So first and foremost of all, we have to know this as truth. Jesus Christ is God. God incarnate, meaning God in the flesh, God in physical form. At my local church, we have a men's Bible study on Tuesdays, and we're going through a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And we have, there's a topic directly about the Incarnation. And this is what he has to say about the Incarnation. It is here, in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the Incarnation. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. I think that there is a general misunderstanding in the world today, and in the church today, as to who or what exactly Jesus is. And I think part of it stems from a lack of understanding of the title given to him in the New Testament. Many times in the, in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. But what exactly does that mean? If you take the words literally, it gives the idea that Jesus could be a created being, or that he somehow was a normal man who inherited power from God. We can quickly come to this conclusion because that's how humans understand the dynamic between a father and a child. Obviously, I'm a human being myself, and I am the son of an earthly father. We see this person as a source of origin. I came from this man. And we see qualities of ourselves that we inherited from this man, whether it be looks or mannerisms, personality, so on. But the Bible doesn't want us to stop at this conclusion. There is a key word that can easily be overlooked in one of the most famous verses from Scripture. Take a look again at John 3.16. This is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Remember that word there, begotten. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What does that word mean? This comes from a Greek word, monogenes, which means to be unique in kind, 
or being the only one of its kind. So, we can conclude by that understanding of the word monogenes that Jesus is begotten because he is uniquely God's Son, in a way that Jesus shares the same deity and divine character as his Father. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, and he is equal to his Father in authority and in power. It's perfectly normal to wrestle with the idea that Jesus was both completely human and yet completely God at the same time, but we cannot downgrade him to anything less than the Almighty himself, because that is who he is revealed to be in the scriptures. Here's something else to think about. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. John beautifully illustrates this for us at the beginning of his gospel. Let's look at a few verses from John chapter 1 that will lay this out in front of us. Let's look at the first four verses here. Verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let's go down to verse 9. There was a true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten, there's that word again, begotten, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see the consistency in what John is saying here? We read through Scripture that God is holy, and he makes himself known as such, but his very essence, his very character, is represented to us through someone tangible and very real in the person of Jesus Christ. But let me ask you something. Put a little twist on this. Why is Jesus called the Word of God if he's supposed to be God himself? Does that contradict itself in any way? So here's something else to consider. The Bible is the Word of God. Now, I assure you, I'm not trying to talk to you like you're stupid, or I'm, and I'm not trying to confuse you anyway, but let me ask you this. If we take the language literally, how can the Bible be God's Word, and Jesus Christ be God's Word? Wouldn't you think that, since Jesus is the Lord himself in the flesh, that he should be superior to the Bible, and should not be treated as the same thing? I think the answer to this is bigger than that. And here's something to consider, because it's the truth. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. So let's complete this circle of thought through Scripture that will solidify this for us. 
Jesus prays this in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We can understand that because anything that God has ever said is in the Bible, right? Okay. What about this one? John 14, 6. Jesus declares about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is declaring that the Bible is about him. Lastly, let's look at Matthew 4, 4. When Jesus was in the desert being challenged by Satan, he declares this to Satan. It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do you see it? Do you see the point here? From the very first verse of Genesis to the very last verse of Revelation, Jesus is there. He's the one who spoke the galaxies into existence. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and an animal was slain to cover them in their nakedness, Christ was there. When Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his only son and a ram was found and used as the substitute, Christ is there. When Moses discovered the burning bush, Christ is there. Anytime Israel cried out to the Lord in the book of Judges, and God sent a Redeemer to rescue his people, Christ is there. And the list goes on and on and on in every verse and every chapter throughout the Bible. Everything that God speaks, he speaks in truth and in power. So, what he says in his word is consistent, and it describes his character, it describes his desires, and it describes his love for his people. What proceeds out of the mouth of God represents everything about who he is. The Bible is synonymous with Jesus Christ because he wrote it. He penned the destinies of every animal, every person, every celestial body before he even created them. And he wants you to know him for who he is. And the only place you can find how he wants us to know him is through his word. Now, I've been saying all this, and you might be asking, what does this have to do with John chapter 15? You mentioned this at the start, but we haven't even gone there yet. We are just arriving to the place where John chapter 15 is relevant. I felt it was important to have a proper understanding with whom we deal with first in order to put us in a position to better understand what's being said here. So let's go back to John chapter 15, and let's look at the first four verses again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you 
unless you abide in me. What is he telling us to do? He's asking us to abide in him. We are to abide in Christ. Christ refers to himself as the true vine, and he calls us branches. He uses this illustration to help us better understand the kind of invisible spiritual bond that we have with God. The branch is a symbol of our soul, the eternal aspect of us that exists in all humans. He mentions two different kinds of branches here, though. Branches that produce fruit and those that do not. Those that produce fruit are pruned so that they can produce more fruit. In other parts of Scripture, this is referred to as the discipline of the Lord or the chastening of the Lord, depending on your translation. A good place to look at this would be Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, that says this, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. If you're not being disciplined by the Lord on a regular basis, then you really need to examine yourself to determine if you are either resisting him or if you're saved at all. If you are a true Christian, then God will produce fruit in you. But as the vine dresser, it's up to him how much fruit you produce. He calls us to take action and to be obedient, but let him be responsible for the results. For those of you that do not produce fruit, there is reason to fear. There are many in this nation who call themselves Christians, but are really not Christians. In verse 4 of John chapter 15, there's a word that Jesus keeps referring to and how we should be interacting with him. Jesus is calling us to abide in him. What does that mean, to abide? The word abide means to stay with something or someone. He's telling us to stay with him. Now you may say, but I don't know how to abide in him. Or I try to abide in him, but I'm so distracted. These things in the world, my responsibilities, my family, my job, my cell phone, they all distract me. Now, I confess that I am someone who has not mastered this either. In fact, I'm still very much in the learning process, but it is a lifelong journey. What Jesus has revealed in his word about him is very clear. And I firmly believe that scripture reinforces scripture. So let's look at elsewhere in the Bible to see what God has to say about how to abide in him, because this is not a new concept. And I think the reason why Christianity is so weak today is because we don't have a proper understanding of this. Not only that, but we have a neglect for two specific things that teach us how to abide in him. And so the first thing is we neglect the Bible, the Word of God. We neglect it. 
God has preserved his word throughout human history because this is where we are supposed to come and meet with him. When we abide in his word, his word abides in us. That is what the Bible calls developing the mind of Christ. The more time that we spend with our Lord in his word, the more that we become like him. He tells us in his word how to find him. But what is required of us is the seeking. It requires action from us and a desire to know our God. There are so many passages about this in the Bible, but let's just take a look at a few of them, okay? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says this, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things? All the things in this world that keep us up at night, or cause us anxiety, or not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. He tells us to be driven by one singular thing, seeking God's righteousness in his word and advancing his kingdom through the gospel. Jesus also points us to the Old Testament because why else? He's the author, so of course he can. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13 says this, You will seek me, and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Do not take this lightly. This is a promise from God, a guarantee. If you seek him with all your heart, he promises that you'll find him. Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law, the Bible, this book of the law, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. You catch that as well? Prosperity is not the same thing as success. Very interesting. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Do you want to be used by God? You're going to have to prove it by spending time with him in his word. Do you want to grow in holiness? You're going to have to prove it by spending time with him in his word. Do you want to see miracles in your lifetime? You're going to have to prove it by spending time with him in his word. Now, the last two scriptures that we looked at seem to point us to something else that we tend to neglect. It was talking about the law of the Lord, which is the Bible, but he also calls us to meditate on it. Not just in the reading of it, but in the digestion of it. 
We are to chew on his word, mulling it over in our minds throughout the day, and giving praise to our God in the process. Do you know what that is? That's prayer. That's prayer. That's the other thing that we today neglect. We neglect to pray. I know for sure that I have a weak understanding of this because I am not a big prayer warrior. But I think most of us are in the same boat, that we really don't grasp the power of prayer. If you look at everyone that we consider great in the Bible, you'll see one common factor that caused supernatural things to take place. The great men of the Bible were men of prayer. They understood that they had no power of their own, and instead, they depended on God for everything. There's a pastor and a former missionary that I greatly admire by the name of Paul Washer. You can find him on YouTube. He's got a lot of messages on there. And he says this about prayer. I've always seen myself as rather weak in prayer. But I always remember this one thing. There is only one hero in this story, and that hero is Jesus Christ. There are no great men or women of God. There are no great men or women of prayer. There are only tiny, weak, faithless people of a great and merciful God who has granted them grace. Please always remember that. Jesus is God who became man. He wasn't just praying because he wanted to show devotion. He was praying because he needed prayer. Because he was to overcome as flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, to draw upon nothing but his Father's strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that way, he can be our example. Your problem is never that we are too weak from the moment that we're born again to the moment we die. The problem is that God is constantly working to create weakness in us. The problem is not that you're weak. The problem is that we don't know how weak we are because that weakness would drive us into prayer. When I pray, when I am weak, then I am strong. We need to abide in Christ constantly through prayer. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul writes this, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. He's telling us that prayer should be focused around the kingdom of God and its advancement. Are we praying that God will bring the gospel to the lost? There's nowhere you can go on this earth and not come across someone who's not saved. Are we praying for opportunities to share our faith with these people and for them to hear these words of life? When Jesus taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer, 
he makes it clear that all of the prayer is about God. We need to be reminded daily about who he is, that he is above all things, and that his kingdom comes first. I'm guilty of this as well, but we tend to use prayer as a complaint hotline instead of showing awe and reverence to the one that we pray to. That's why Jesus has called us to abide in him in prayer, because that's how he reveals himself to us. John chapter 3, verses 35 and 36. John the Baptist says something here, and it's worth noting. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That is the alternative. Please listen to me. There are only two options to consider here. Regardless of culture, regardless of social status, regardless of political stance, regardless of background, we only have two options. We either accept Jesus or we don't. It's not about believing in a religion or a family tradition. It's not about believing in a social construct or a set of nice rules to live by. If you reject Jesus, you are rejecting a person. And this person happens to be God in the flesh. Our Heavenly Father loves His Son more than all of creation combined. And to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of mankind is to reject life. Do you notice the contrast here in this scripture? Look what it says. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Do you catch that? Believing is one thing, but obedience is something completely different. We demonstrate our love for Christ by putting our obedience into action. We have to demonstrate our love for Him. In December of this year, 2022, I will be celebrating my 15th year of being married to my beautiful wife. If I told my wife every day that I loved her, which I do, but yet I treat her like garbage every day, I am demonstrating that I am a liar and that I really don't love her. We can't lie to ourselves either. If we truly love the Lord, then it should be evident in our lives and in what other people see in us. That is what entices people to Christ and to the gospel, is that we are living a life demonstrating our love for him. And that is the fruit that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15. We produce evidence of what we believe by putting our faith into action. He also says this, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I challenge you to bear fruit in the name of Christ. So let's look at John chapter 15 one last time, just verses 5 and 6. I am the vine, 
you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. It mentions a gathering up of branches. And who's they? Who's they that gathers up those branches that Jesus is talking about here? These are angels. Angels that escort souls to either the gates of heaven or the pit of hell. And yes, heaven and hell are both very real places. So again, we are only left with two options here. Only those who truly are saved bear fruit, and all others will be taken away. We cannot bear fruit on our own because there is no good in us. I know that may be hard to hear, and this may sound really harsh, but that is what God teaches about us in His Word. Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3 say this, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. I'm sorry to say it. There is no goodness in you. But you know what? There's no goodness in me either. We are not capable of it. The only way for God to look at you and to find you good and acceptable is through Jesus Christ. So we come back to the original question. What kind of man is this? This isn't just a man. This man is the living God. And he is our only hope. And he is the only way to truly live. Do you want to know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is? Let's pray about it. Close your eyes. And as we have our eyes closed... I want you to raise your hearts to God in admiration of who he is and to offer him the reverence he deserves. I wanted you to know who Jesus Christ was first before I shared the gospel with you. The gospel would not mean much if Jesus was just a good man or a famous teacher or simply another prophet of God. We can't trust in humanity with the eternal destination of our souls. We can't. Famous teachers come and go all the time. They say nice things, but eventually they will die and they'll rot. Prophets do speak God's truth, but they can't save you. But Jesus is different. He is God incarnate, and his power is infinite. He has existed since eternity past with God the Father and created all things for his pleasure. 
he orchestrated a plan for mankind to be redeemed from their sin. He's known us since before he spoke anything into creation, and he has loved us since then as well. And he knew that our sins separate us from him in such a way that in his justice, we could never save ourselves from his wrath. So he chose to come into this world as a man, but yet he remained fully God. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and allowed himself to be killed on the cross as an innocent man in order to be the perfect sacrifice once for all time. In his death, our sins are forgiven, and God's justice is satisfied forever. Jesus physically died and was buried for three days. But after those three days, he rose to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was witnessed alive by over 500 people. He was witnessed ascending into heaven. And he lives today, continuing to work in this world and in our hearts. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is our only hope for salvation. If you feel the call to repentance, to turn away from sin, Christ is willing to cleanse you. His people need to be holy, as he has called us to be holy like him. Sin is to be overcome, and proper holiness is a matter of personal repentance. Pray that God will change your heart to move into obedience and action in knowing him through prayer and spending time with him in his word. If you're listening to this right now and you feel the call to salvation, if you don't know this Jesus, you can celebrate new life in him right now. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's not too late. There will be a time soon where it will be too late. And we don't know what tomorrow will bring. So why delay such an important decision? Jesus is coming soon, as he has said. But he won't return like he did in the Gospels. He will return in power as a conqueror to permanently destroy Satan and redeem his people for eternity. But we still have hope if you don't know Christ. Romans 10.13 says that for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you feel this call, please pray this prayer with me. There are no magic words that will save you. You have to really mean what you're saying. It takes you believing that Jesus is Lord and that he can save you. Pray something like this. Heavenly Father, I confess to you right now that I am a sinner. I have done things that I regret. My life is empty and hopeless without you. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, and that you came to save me from my sin. I ask you to come into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior and to make me clean. 
right now, I am committing my life to you forever. Thank you for loving me and giving me new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments or prayer requests, you'll find our email in the description of this channel and on this episode of the podcast. If you have accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, it would mean the world to me to rejoice with you. I can also point you to resources that I believe will be helpful to you as you start your new life in Christ. Again, thank you for taking the time to listen today. I'm Ryan, and have a great day. God bless you.